Why wouldn't you want to serve? What would you like to do in life? Have you ever thought about serving more than just your friends? What about serving a country, serving a nation? What better honor is this than to take care of one of your fellow brothers or sisters? What more honor is that? It's no great honor. Welcome to War Dogs, the military medicine podcast. This show brings you a firsthand, behind-the-scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of the entire military healthcare team. From state-of-the-art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, War Docs has you covered. On this episode, we're privileged to welcome retired Navy Command Master Chief Tyrone Willis to War Docs. He received his bachelor's degree and MBA from Grantham University and was trained as a Navy hospital corpsman. He's held several senior enlisted positions at all levels, retiring as the command senior enlisted leader of Walter Reed National Military Medical Center and the Defense Health Agency. He has deployed several times around the world. He currently serves as a recruitment specialist for diversity at the Uniformed Services University and is on the Wardocs Board of Directors. You can learn more about his bio on wardocspodcast.com. In this episode, you'll hear about the critical roles hospital corpsmen fill in military medicine and the myriad of opportunities Navy medicine provides. Command Master Chief talks about lessons he learned in multiple deployment experiences and how he used this to train future healthcare professionals. He describes some of the challenges of being a senior enlisted leader in tough situations and provides sage advice on overcoming adversity. Command Master Chief Willis is a true ambassador for military medicine and issues. You will hear his passion and commitment to preparing individuals to provide excellent care in the most austere environments. I'm your host, Dr. Doug Soderdahl, retired Army urologist, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Dr. Wayne Causey, active duty vascular surgeon. Today, we're privileged to welcome retired Navy Command Master Chief Tyrone Willis to Wardocs. Master Chief, thanks for joining us today. Glad to be here. Command Master Chief Willis, you completed 32 years of Naval service. Take us to the beginning. Tell us about your pre-service life and what prompted you to join the Navy. Actually, I wasn't planning on joining the Navy. Actually, it was the Air Force. And the only reason I joined the Navy is because the Air Force recruiter left to, went to go to Arkansas. I'm from Memphis, Tennessee. So he came when I was in my junior year and I was excited about joining the Air Force. And he left. And by chance, I was taking a good friend to the Navy recruiting office and they were more interested in me than her that was my pre-navy days and in particular how i got to look at being a corpsman was memphis tennessee have quite a few hospitals and i figured if i join the military i'd like to have a nice trade just in case i get out the service and it didn't work after the first four years i have a nice trade and i could do that while i attend college so that's really how my Navy early days began. And actually it wasn't even being a corpsman, actually it was gonna be electronics. And electronics was that the C school that I wanted was gonna take about six months after I graduated high school. And I was like, well, I can go ahead and go to college because I had few scholarships, particularly in band and choir. And I was just like, mm, what you have available, something else. And they talked about hospital corpsman. And I was like, okay, I can do that. So Wayne and I are both Army and very much used to working with medics. Tell us a little bit about the training of a hospital corpsman. Is it any different from a medic? And what was the requirement when you went through it? And how has that changed over time? Being a hospital corpsman is quite different. Well, I said quite different, but somewhat different than being a medic in the Army and Air Force. 
we get the basic fundamentals of basic patient care, whereas that we're in school for three months. We start off with basic anatomy and physiology, learn how to do patient assessments, IV therapy, blood drawing, learn how to do basic labs. And so that was the main aspect of it. We do a whole gambit, or shall I say, a variety of different things versus like some of the medics, they may just say do medical records, or they may just do be a medic with the, the grunts or specialize in a C school. The hospital corpsman at the time when I was going through, we all got the basic fundamentals of being in hospital care. And that's what's pretty unique, what I really enjoyed about the Navy, because you still could work in lab or surgical tech, but you still can work in surgery. So there's some of it was on the job training. So, and then if you have a liking of that, you can particularly go and seek out that particular C school or that specialty, whether it's lab, x-ray, or what have you. So that was pretty unique, what I thoroughly enjoyed about being a hospital corpsman. The things that changed now, when I went through back in 85, the school was in Great Lakes, and it was also one in San Diego. Now they have collaborated all the different medics, our Air Force, Navy, and hospital corpsman now in San Antonio, which I like. I think it's nice to all get a foundation that we group because basic care really doesn't change. Only thing changes, especially like take, for instance, if you're doing this in the Navy or the Army, the Air Force, our different cultures, and you learn a little something different besides that. But patient care is patient care. So your first duty assignment was at Naval Hospital Millington, Tennessee. And at that time, you were designated as a National Emergency Medical Technician. To me, that sounds like an EMT. How was the Navy job different than what we might traditionally think of with an EMT? Basically, I was both. I had to take a national registry as a national registered emergency medical technician. Even though I was hospital corner house foundation, we still had to help do some of the training as a EMT. And once you complete training, which is probably about six weeks of training, additional training, besides being a hospital corpsman, you take the national registry and you register it, you pass the test and become a national registered EMT. So my first venture in my first hospital, just coming out of course school, I worked in emergency room which I fell in love with. And even to this day, I still love emergency medicine. I got a chance to do some amazing things as an EMT, go to car crashes and help patients, extract patients. Most of our routine EMT were basically going to the uh, C schools or A school for the students because in Millington at the time, it was one of our aviation bases where we taught pilots as well as aviation students to learn how to work on planes. So a lot of that, you know, after Friday night, drinking or whatever the case may be, you know, have a little incident here or there. That's where we got a lot of our training. Or someone injured, we'll go and see them. It was rarely that we would go to a major event. Most of the events or injuries or something came to the hospital. So I got a chance to do some amazing things. And I just love working in emergency room. So it, I think by that, it helped me with my future in the Navy as far as military medicine. So your training consisted of field medical service school and you earned your enlisted surface warfare and fleet marine force designation. Tell us about those designations and what those signify and allow you to do. Field medical service school, that's basically when you're, you have orders to go with the Marines. You're attached to a Marine Corps unit. Prior to that, you have to go through what they call fleet medical training school. And what's that basically tell you about the Marine environment, how to live in a field, how to be physically fit because some of the arduous duties you may do, land navigations, how to shoot a weapon, even though we're non-combatants, but you still need to learn how to shoot a weapon just in case because you're a non-combatant. 
but you're here to protect your patient. So you need to know how to fire a weapon and no weapon familiarity. And it's just showing you about different techniques of medical care that it wouldn't be the same in a hospital setting, in a field setting, learning about preventive medicine techniques and stuff of that nature, and learn how to force march because you have to have a ruck on your back or a backpack and you have to work that way as well. So that was the unique piece part about being a field medical corpsman, uh, we call a fleet marine corpsman, because you have to have that additional training. And that training was probably at the time, I think uh, eight weeks, maybe six weeks, kind of hard. It's been over 37 years, so kind of forgotten. But as far as designation, it's similar to the uh, rest of the armed forces where you get a badge or something like that. The enlisted surface warfare badge, normally you get that on ships, but you have to know more about different competencies about the Navy. Like take, for instance, you have to know what type of ship you're on. So I was on different types. I was on amphibious ship and I was on a destroyer. So the amphibious, you have to know about those particular ships as well as Naval Heritage, U.S. Naval organizations, shipboard organizations, about supplies as well as deck operation, combat systems like your weapons, your torpedoes or rockets and stuff of that nature. You have to know about those as well as engineering, how the ship work how the water causes steam and, and all those different intricacies of the ship. And you have to know about hazardous material as well as hazardous waste. So all those in the combination, I know it may have seemed like a lot, but you get thorough training to learn about that in your ship. And in the Navy, every sailor on the ship is a firefighter because you have to know how to fight because you can't call the fire department <laughs> when you're at sea. And as far as the fleet Marine Force, similar badges that for those that are coming with the Marine after being up with the Marines one year, you have to learn about marine tactics. Uh, you have to do their physical fitness, which is different from the Navy, a little bit more strenuous than the Navy. You have to do a six-mile force march, as well as uh, doing uh, PQS or personal qualification standards and a lot of different variations of that. And also knowing about the Marine Corps heritage ranks, you have to do a written exam as well as an oral exam. So not only that you, you learn about it, you have to talk about it as well. And what's amazing is that a lot of your hospital corpsmen know more about Marine Corps history and custom than they know about the Navy. So that's interesting when you talk about the shipboard medicine. What do you think are the unique aspects of shipboard medicine that some of us that have never been on a, a military ship for long periods of time may not fully understand and appreciate about delivering patient care? Shipboard medicine is amazing. As a sailor, I think it is one of the ultimate things you can be as a corpsman on a hospital ship, because you are it. You can't call to the hospital in certain cases or other ships. Everything that happens, you have to be able to take care of them. So at the time, I didn't have the most modern technology what we had on our ship, but we made the most of it. And you have to learn how to depend on one another because normally medical, it depends on the size of the ship. It can be either one corpsman, like on a submarine, or you can have three on a smaller ship or up to on a carrier, about 20 some personnel and you can have your doctors, but some of the ships do not have doctors. They have what we call independent duty corpsmen, where they're not quite a PA, but not too far, I would say not too far as skill sets. They take care of everything. Everything is honest on the corpsman. I mean, labs, you have to do basic labs and some of the machinery that you have, technology is not advanced. So you make the most of the basic ones, but yet you're still doing outstanding care because at the end of the day, you have to, take care of the patient. And if you're some that may have never been on a ship, that's seem like archaic medicine. No, it's not archaic medicine, it's just different medicine. 
And the thing is, you learn how those type of equipment, your personnel, and what the capabilities you can do on your ship. Now, depends on, uh, normally we go, for the most part, if you're in an ARG, that means amphibious readiness group, which you have multiple different ships, there's a hospital ship or the main ship. And normally there's your larger ships where you have a physician or a physician or two. If you have something that's too complicated that you can't handle on your level, you can always medevac them there. Oftentimes, some of the other ships you may have, uh, because I've been in operations, whereas that we had a whole fleet surgical team with us, that you have your surgeon and your OR nurse, your surgical tech, and others in supporting roles, anesthesiologists, that can support some of the surgeries or something mishaps that may happen. It's nothing different than being at a regular OR. It's just in a different setting that you may be underway, uh, away from the, the comforts of uh, shore duty. So let's get into some specifics of your experience. You were stationed aboard the USS Juno in port in Sasebo, Japan, but you deployed to Kuwait. Tell us about that experience, if any uh, interesting things happened. Being on a ship out of Sasebo, Sasebo, Japan, that's like the lower end of Japan. And it is the only, at the time, the only what we call four deployed ships, meaning that we're already out to the sphere, meaning that we can, any given time, something in Pacific kick off, we can go right there. Being a four-deployed ship, that means you're away from home quite often. Any given time, it's not a set time that you can be in and say, I'm be in for two weeks. You may be in for two weeks, out for a month, come back in for one week and gone for another three weeks. So any given time, you're at the ready. On our particular ship, we was able to do amazing things. Some humanitarian assistance, we went to assist a few down in East Timor. We was able to do uh, Enduring Freedom, where we went around different areas around the Pacific to look for bad people. And we had a component of uh, all branches of service. We had Green Berets as well as SEALs and Air Force, PJs. So we had the whole gambit on our particular ship. And it was fascinating that we can all come together and work collectively to do the right thing. And also we had a component that we had extra medical personnel. So just in case anything happened that was above what we could handle. So we had a fleet surgery team assist us as well as PJs. In that particular time, I thought that was some of the best that I've ever been associated with, with the Army, with the Navy, the Air Force, all coming together collectively, looking for bad guys and stuff of that nature. And one of the most memorable things that right after Fallujah kicked off in uh, Iraq, one of the major offenses, we took the 31st Mew out there with Marines, and uh, we was able to take them there to land because that was their mode of transportation. So we sent, I, I can't recall the number of Marines, but we dropped them off right on the beach of Iraq to go and do that. And while they was doing that, we was able to police around Somalia, around the uh, Middle East, ensuring, you know, bad people not doing bad things. At that particular time, it was a lot of piracy around Somalia and stuff of that nature. So we was guarding, protecting that. Those particular things uh, remind me just that, you know, how vast the world is, meaning that with a, a warship, that you can go and patrol and keep a lot of things out of harm's way because you're protecting the, the waterways. Uh, particularly Kuwait, we had, uh, that was a, another adventure for me. Uh, that was after I had left the USS Juno and I was at the Naval Hospital Okinawa at that particular time. You deployed in support of Operation Desert Storm, Desert Shield with the 2nd Marine Division. Tell us about that deployment. 
Desert Shield, Desert Storm, that's when the formulation of a lot of forces was going to Saudi Arabia to combat Iraq, uh, Saddam Hussein specifically. And they was grabbing all of us being augmented to Marine Corps units because normally Marine Corps don't plus up 100% uh, as far as medical personnel. But then because of uh, Desert Shield, Desert Storm, they did. So I was stationed originally in uh, Naval Hospital Millington in the middle of the country. So once I left there, I was augmented to 2nd Marine Division. This wasn't my first time with the Marines. It was my second time. So I was very well versed with the Marine Corps. Matter of fact, I had been had extensive training from EMT. I went through EMT again with the Marines when I got stationed with them. And EMT Intermediate, as well as Clinical Assistant and uh, Advanced Trauma Management through, I must applaud the Army for sending me to Fort Bragg. There was a special operation trauma school I attended. So I was well equipped for what I was about to engage. So once with uh, 1-8, 1st Battalion, 8th Marines, 2nd Marine Division, uh, we went and we just set up to assume our position there and getting ready to go in. And at the time, I, I noticed a lot of our corpsmen, as well as a lot of our medical personnel, advanced trained as I was. So what I was able to do was I was able to, to conduct a lot of training. So I just wanted to get everybody up to speed because I figured if we have casualties, Besides the doctors, some of us need to make sure we had advanced skills set for what we may encounter. So I was able to do that as well as the Marine because we do the buddy aid because we need to make sure that they're taken care of and depends on what the injury is, they can take care of some as well, especially if you have a mass casualties. Our first casualties came upon an airstrike. Some of our Marines were a little too close. Uh, nothing life-sustaining, just some minor injuries. So we took care of them. That was the first day on our advancing toward Kuwait uh, because I was there three months. We, I was probably about two months before we, we started advancing. After that, the first night, I had a couple of casualties. You know, we had incoming uh, mortar and things of that nature. But I, I would tell you, I wasn't even afraid or worried. And reason why I wasn't because what's most important to me about the casualty because I heard some vehicles coming in and I knew they were with casualties. So that was the most important thing, even though, you know, we had to take cover, get in pits, and stuff of that nature. But as a medical professional, you don't think about yourself. You think about your patient. And I think by me thinking about the patient, everything else was calmed down. I didn't have to worry about anything else, even everything surrounded. So by the time uh, we had about four or five casualties, nothing life-threatening, but some did have some uh, orthopedic injuries. So I was able to grab, get mine, uh, take care. I think they had a foot injury or leg injury and uh, make sure he got, because we had to build these pits to put the patients in because he was taking incoming. And that that was that night, even though, like we said, uh, a lot of incoming, and we was like the logistics. So we weren't like the grunts, but we was there with the, the main group. So we could take care of that group. But the following day, I happened to be one of the uh, advanced party, meaning that we had like a forward BAS, meaning that you have advanced group and then you had a basic group. And I was accompanied with a doctor and I think two other personnel. So we was the one to do the first triage if we have casualties. And the second day, I uh, was called upon that, not that we had injuries ourselves, but we had enemy prisoner war that was injured. We had quite a few. So we was myself, doctor, and we had interpreter to go and see. My first patient was uh, amputee, right amputee arm, uh, dehydrated, was somewhat shocky, uh, had been left to die. And, you know, I have no 
hesitation or reservation of taking care of him. So start IV in his arm, talk to, had the interpreter talk to him. He was not afraid and uh, was very pleased for our assistance. Now, just give a little background. Most of the people we encountered didn't want to be there. They was forced to be there. So none of them was hostile that I came in contact. They were very thankful that we was able to provide the medical care. And that's one of the things, you know, and I, I thought about as a hospital corpsman or medical professional, I try not to get caught up in who the patient is. It was just, I look at humanity in a sense. And sometimes, you know, you say, well, that's the enemy, but our job as non-combatants, that is part of the thing to take care of enemy prisoner wars. So that was my main focus to sustain life. Now we had quite a few other casualties that other people was taking care of because quite a few of them had severe burns from third to second degree. One gentleman had burns all over his entire face, has at least second and third degree burns on his face and hands, and others had other injuries. So it was just like mass casualty. We was able to send the ones that needed additional care back because we was already forward and take care of the ones that we could. So that was my second day of it. And later on, we it was just that they was giving up in so many droves. I mean, they was surrendering like hundreds because of the supplies we had. We'd take care of a few or we could and send the others back to the rear to get additional treatment. So because of your experience, you, you have a unique perspective because you were deployed to Iraq for Desert Shield, Desert Storm, but then also came back for Iraqi freedom. Can you tell us were there any lessons that you learned from those experiences in the early 90s that you used after 9-11? And what happened in your deployment after that 9-11 attack? And we started OEF and OIF. The enemy was, had somewhat changed from being, I really don't want to fight, to now I do want to fight. And most of Enduring Freedom, we ran around the different islands to all the different areas of people that was insurgents here and there for whatever reason and looking for them. At the time for Enduring Freedom, I really didn't encounter any. But what I did was I trained the corpsman that was going into Fallujah. I trained them saying, hey, the key thing is patient care. I know we're non-combatant and the enemy do not like us. But you have a, a mindset of humanity. And for the most part, if someone is injured, they do not have a problem with you taking care of them, even regardless how they may feel about you. And one of the things that you think about diplomacy in the United States is great at diplomacy for us is not always warheads on foreheads or acts with weapon. It is taking care of patient and being and showing humanitarian treatment. And with that, we've gained great diplomacy by being able to treat people, whether it's the enemy, prisoner of war, or just people in different countries. And with that, I, I tried to instill in that, hey, take care of the patient, your best your abilities. First, of course, your supplies are for Americans. But when we have the opportunity to take care of prisoner of war, do it. Now, the key thing as well is ensure that you safety at first. They have, of course, before they get to you, all weapons have been removed in a hostility. Uh, you have Marines there or others to be in charge, ensure nothing goes wrong. And you just treat them just like you would treat any other patient. And the key thing is, if I can say anything, is about humanity treatment. Treat others the way you want to be treated, regardless, even though they're the enemy. But trust me, they may have a change of heart because you took care of them. 
So as your career progressed, you then became a senior enlisted leader within Navy medicine. Uh, you graduated from the Command Master Chief course, class of 146. Tell us about the senior level training and the added skills that that gives to Navy medicine. When you go to the senior list academy, then you think about Command Master Chief things, similar to like the Sergeant Major course, you know, something they teach about management, about leadership, uh, national security. So they did the big picture as well as, you know, physical fitness because you need to stay physically fit. But the management piece, because as you move up senior in medicine, you have to be able to manage people. You have to be able to lead people. And that is key if you want to be successful in any hospital or any uh, healthcare facility. And the key thing is knowing what your capabilities are and knowing what theirs are. And with that, the training that you received, and as you matriculate up in rank, you get more responsibility, you, you become a better manager, but they give you some tools and resources that you're able to have. Now, what I did like about the Senior Enlisted Academy, as well as Command Master Chief, you learn to interact with other services because at the Senior Enlisted Academy, I had Army in mind. Matter of fact, I had a uh, the head cook for one of the generals, Major General, I can't recall his name at the time, but he was one of the, the main generals in Iraq and he was his head cook and he was in my class in my senior enlisted class. So you get different perspective and management and how people operate, as well as I have, we had Air Force and you, are, you can also have Coast Guard. So in the senior enlisted class, what you learn is always about uh, resources, availability, networking, uh, because as you know, the military, even though we may be separate, but we are interdependent on one another on the mission. So those are some key things. And it's nothing changed different when you think about military medicine, because I've been fortunate, even prior coming to Walter Reed, that I, I had worked with Army. I worked in Army in Kuwait. I had uh, ambulance there. When I was in Okinawa, we worked with uh, Air Force and our NICU. So I had some joint service experience in special military now. It is more joint than military medicine is than it has been before. So those skill sets that you learn about managing people and being a leader, I think it was vital, especially with the maturation of moving up in rank and having major billets as a command master chief or a command sergeant major or command chief. Those, I think, was essential of uh, helping you become better managers, better leaders, and, and know the big picture of military medicine, not just on your level. Looking back over your, your career and looking at your deployments, you've had clinical roles, leadership roles, roles that kind of combined both. What was the craziest clinical case that you saw in all your deployments and what was the most difficult leadership challenge did you have as a senior enlisted Navy leader? One particularly, we had a Marine. We don't know if it was a, allergic to the sun or what. When I was stationed on USS Juno out of Sasebo, he came in, we was deployed, and he had this irritation on his skin, just couldn't stop scratching, I mean, just unbearable. My doctor gave him several injections of morphine. I mean, he was just still just scratching like unreal. And to me, we just didn't know what this particular Marine, what he gotten into or what it was. And it was just fascinating because we still, still to this day, didn't know what caused the reaction with him. Another particular case that was strange, we had a couple of sailors come back. We was underway. This one, we, we had the multi-forces on our ship. Somebody throwing up blood or something like that. And by the time they went to the, the head, or as you all call the latrine, we call head in the Navy, there was blood all over the, the stall, like a horror movie, that's what they said. We brought the patient in. Good thing we had a surgeon and everyone there. 
you know, he wasn't throwing up anything. We checked his blood work and everything. It wasn't. A, and all of a sudden, while I was watching him, he just started spewing up blood out of his mouth. And I was just like, oh, my goodness. Good thing we had blood on board so we could give him blood and everything. But I think he had a tear in his esophagus and he was just and we could not keep him. Even though we had a surgeon, we had to end up uh, flying him off medevac. And good thing we had PJs there. So they went with him as well. So that was fascinating to see somebody's, you know, vomiting that much blood. As far as you said, leadership challenge. One of the leadership challenge I had was a very difficult commanding officer. And I said it was happened to be in Kuwait. And this particular commanding officer, I think, was very damaging to the whole mission to the point of putting people at had and staff pretty much at um, PTSD because of his actions. It was very toxic, putting service members against one another. And it was probably one of the worst commands that I ever been attributed to. Now I have to admit now, he didn't have a problem with me. If truth be told, he liked me, but I I just could not tolerate his uh, demeanor, how he talked to people, how he uh, conducted business. I only had about two or three months about two months because we were doing a transition. And it kind of reminded me of the Wizard of Oz. You know how it's in the beginning, it's black and white. And all of a sudden, the witchy witch is dead and all of a sudden it turned to color. When we got a new commanding officer, everything turned to color. It blossomed and we did great. And one of the things about this particular officer, it wasn't so much it was with the enlisted, and some of it was, but it was with his executive officer and his officers, how he treated them. And, you know, me being at the time I was uh, an EA, I wasn't a command master chief. I was, I was one of the command senior enlisted leaders. So I didn't really have any control. But how he conducted business, very toxic. And I think he probably ended the careers of a few naval officers because of his actions. And the sad piece to see junior personnel seeing this and thinking this is how the Navy is. So you have to let them know that, hey, this is, uh, this is just one command. This is not how true Navy medicine works. And what we would do is make the best of it because it's only for a time or a season and this person would be gone. But that was one of the worst experiences I had in leadership in my naval career. And it was a good thing that I was a senior enlisted leader, that I can kind of protect the younger people and some of the officers because some of them could, you know, listen. But it was, it was a terrible experience, so I have to admit. So after that, you actually had several other significant command positions. But if after you, having completed that and you look back on that moment now, do you have any tips that you would provide to people who may find themselves in a similar situation? Remain who you are. Don't let someone dictate their actions to dictate the way you act. You know, always be respectful, always be tactful. Look for also your mentors or other people you can talk to and confide in because that's key to your success. And let me remind people, it's just for a season, only for a season. It will not be lifelong. And I always look for something positive in those situations. It's always something positive, regardless of what you may be encountering at that time. And keep yourself busy. Be respectful. Do your work. Listen to them because you, you still have to obey orders. But do not allow somebody to dictate the way you act because of the way they're acting. You just can't do it because you give them power. And the key thing, you do not want to give someone power that's mean harm to you and others. And also be protective of others. I used to always tell my leaders, it comes a time, it's convenient between you and your peers or your sailors or your airmen or your Marines or your soldiers. 
you just got inconvenient because you're a leader. That's what leaders do. Leaders stand in the gap for those that they're in charge of. And they reach back to others that, that there's always someone you can talk to, even in times like that. So your experience dealing with the other services, the Air Force and Army, kind of set you up and, and maybe even promoted you into that position in D.C., where you work at Walter Reed, you work with the Defense Health Agency, the National Capital Region Directorate. Now you got all these services working together. You're a senior enlisted Navy. How do you get all of those services in medicine to work together? And tell us a little bit about that experience and what you learned from it. I think it all started with a conversation from who selected me for the position. When I was on the ship, I received a phone call from General Clark's secretary. And I spoke to General Clark and he was Army. And I'd already had a couple of conversations for some of those in the position already. And they said, you are the ideal person because they knew my background. And I have worked with others and I just have a passion for people. And just talking to Dave General Clark, and he just explained, hey, this is what he's trying to do. And I was OK. And I'd already heard about the rumors about Walter Reed, National Military Medical Center, being National Naval Medical Center prior. Now I also have this new name, Walter Reed and sailors and soldiers are just like, oh, no. But thinking about it, I was just like, okay, I have a mission to write the ship to make sure that we all get along and hold hands and sing Kumbaya. And by that, what I was, I made it intentional is that when I came to Walter Reed, it was about everyone. It went about sailors as much as I was a sailor. My sailors, I had to love the soldiers and the airmen just as much. So in other words, to me, no service is more important than the next. We all had a purpose and was all equally important. So my thing was, I brought all the senior enlisted leaders together and I said, hey, my name is Willis. And I know in, in the army, you know, if you're a command master chief, you don't use first name basis. They just don't do that. But in, in the Navy, from the E7 and up, we do. I blended the cultures that we had. I respect the army culture as well as Air Force, as well as Navy. So my thing was to have everyone equal plan that we have one mission. It's not a Navy mission. It's not an Army mission. It is not an Air Force mission. It's a patient mission. It's about patient care. That's the most important piece. So all our cultures have to be in sync with what's our mission in this patient care. And just having buy-in with everyone, respecting everybody's different cultures, and having a love for patients. Everybody got on the bandwagon. It was just like, okay. Because the key thing was about just having a love for people and everything patient-centered. So nothing was ever about me or the Navy or the Army. It was about us collectively. And that's the same way when I how I worked throughout the DHA as well as uh, National Capital Region. So how would you deal with somebody who wasn't on board with the us? And they said, you know what? This is all about my service and your service needs to get in your own silos and do your own thing. How do you deal with that? Let me be quite candid here. Now, I used to tell people, and I was quite right with them because I, I said, I love you. Let me be honest with you. Let me, so I'm saying it out of love. But I told them, if you do not want to be at Walter Reed, you don't have to be here. We're not begging anyone to be here. We will look for means, but if you want to go somewhere else, we look for other means for you to go. If you don't want to be here, we don't want you to be here. Now, Willis, how do you have that kind of control? I didn't. But that's the mindset I had. It was like, okay, I need you to be a part of this team. Just give me 30 days. And if you want to be here, okay, we'll try to get you out of here. 
But you did have those that just like, oh, this got to be. But my thing is, to me, and I'm quite sure if you ask anybody during that time from year 2014 to 2017, thoroughly enjoyed Walter Reed. Thoroughly, when I said thoroughly enjoyed it, thoroughly enjoyed it. Because it wasn't about us. It was about a team. It was more of a family. If you can get this, let me, let me be honest with you, Doug. If you can get for a holiday ball, when you're normally getting three, 400 people to come, but if you can get 14 to 1,600 people to come to a military ball at Walter Reed, you're doing good. Not only that, you invite others to come as well. So my strategy on getting people on board the team is just talking to them and say, hey, why you don't want to be here? Because I understand the silence. I get it. I understand this is whole new to you. This was National Navy and all of a sudden it's Walter Reed. I, I get it. But what is your mission? What is our mission? Our mission is not our feelings. Our mission is our mission. That's our mission. So what's more important to you? What is your, what is your purpose? Is your purpose to be in your feelings? Or your purpose is to take care of patients? Because if it's not taking care of patients, maybe you need to seek some type of other employment. Like I said, being transparent and frank with people and letting them know, hey, I'm just doing what I love because we have a mission. That's what our job is. That's what it is. So we fast forward now, not too far because you said 2017, but we fast forward a little bit to the present day. And you are now working with Uniform Services University as a recruitment specialist for diversity and the recruitment diversity officer. Tell us about that position at USU. To be honest with you, gentlemen, it was a position I wanted prior to even retiring. I love outreach. I love diversity. And I love advertising about the military because I, I believe in military medicine. That's why I'm really thankful is a such thing as Wardock. <laughs> I truly support that. But getting back to what my job is, my job is I am a recruiter recruiting special for diversity, meaning I'm looking for students of color to become physicians, but not just students of color, anyone and everyone interested in military medicine, because I truly believe it is the very best medicine there is. And so my job can tell with outreach with uh, schools from elementary to middle to high school, as well as colleges, and the diversity piece, as well as with faculty as well, recruiting faculty of being more diverse in faculty as well. I believe in Uniform Service University. I wouldn't work there if I didn't believe in this mission. And bringing, you know, what we call America's medical school to look more like America, being diverse in all cultures and creeds and genders. I believe in, and that's why I thoroughly enjoy my job. I get a chance to work with some of the best people, the smartest people in the world there. And it's the common purpose is military medicine recruiting doctors or anyone in health sciences. That's what my job is. I get a chance to tell people how great military medicine is. And that's what I'm fascinated with. You know, kind of hard to believe that I have a job this great after retirement because I thought working at Walter Reed, it wouldn't get any better. I love Walter Reed. This is not quite Walter Reed, but it ain't too far from it. Because to me, Walter Reed was the pinnacle. Now that you're retired, you can look back on your career and reflect. And kind of going back to things we talked about earlier in the interview, some of your experience involved some tough things, and that was providing detainee care, taking care of the enemy. And we see medical providers from medics, corpsmen, nurses, PT, 
doctors, everybody, they deal with things that a lot of people don't deal with who don't deploy. So looking back, how do you think the military does with dealing with emotional, psychological, behavioral health impacts on the providers? And what could we do better? A lot with me personally is my faith. A lot of things I do based off my faith. One of the things I can say we've done better as far as psychologically for preparing doctors and people in the healthcare field, whether it's Coleman medic nurses or specialists, that we talk to them more and give them tools to better prepare them ahead of time. Now, yesteryear, like when I first came in, that was non-existence. If it was, I didn't know anything about it. Would I say they prepared me to go to Desert Shield, Desert Storm? I would say no. Back then, it was about being that hard, you know, hardcore person and you just deal with it. And if you didn't deal with it, you was like soft or you weren't capable and why you weren't on that level to be able to do that. I think with the resources we have now, talking to physicians and I mean, people in the healthcare field, or whether it's coin medics or whoever they may be, I think better courses that we have now, better support, better resources. Can we do things better? I can say yes, because you can always do things better. How can we do things better? Meet the people where they are and let them know that, hey, you're not alone. Many have gone through these similar things that you're going through, These have some of these same feelings. How can we better support you in whatever you may be going through? Now, will that say, hey, maybe we shouldn't send this person downrange? I would say that. Get someone more qualified because there, for the most part, and I'll be quite honest with you, gentlemen, there's also always somebody that wants to go downrange. There's always someone. They're looking to go for that experience and they feel like they've been better trained and they're better suited for those experiences. I would say continue to do the training, continue to do the support. Like I said, start with faith and I think I'm better for it. So anything that come to pass or anything I may be involved with, I'm prepared for it. It's nothing I fear. It's nothing I like have reservation or hesitation. If my country call on me to do it, I gladly do it. And also, you know, having the support of my family, that my family know how I am, who I am, and what I represent. That support is key. And I think not only when you're supporting the member, you need to support the family as well. I think that is key essential because that is the solid foundation for many uh, when they're going down range or have some of these issues when they're preparing to handle situations that they're not accustomed to having or handling. So two or three months ago, our nonprofit War Docs invited you to join our board. And so we're all volunteers. None of us get any compensation or anything from doing this. It's purely for the love of military medicine. You accepted graciously to join our board. Why did you decide that you wanted to be a part of War Docs? I believe in War Docs. I first learned about it from General Clark. And he told me, I heard something before, but he talked to me about it. And I believe in General Clark. It is nothing General Clark can ask me that I won't do. He's like family to me. I believe in the organization because I, I, I truly believe military medicine should have a voice. I believe in Wardock being that voice for military medicine because the things that we do, when you're talking about capturing legacies, when you're talking about capturing information that is, that's important to not just the past generation, but the future generation. I mean, the experience that you have you can't pay for that. And it's like you said, it's a volunteer. It's something that's so 
we all must have a love for military medicine to get it out there. And it's more important, a love for people. Because just think about what war docs represent. Think about the experience of all the ones we've had on the panel so far. And to think about the lives they have impacted. Millions. Not just the lives they impact while they were serving, but the future lives they impact. Insurmountable. It's priceless. You can't put a dollar amount on that. And willing to assist any in military medicine, to me, it is a win-win. Matter of fact, uh, hopefully everyone listening to this pod will jump on just say, what can I do to be part of Wardock? Because Wardock, if you use the military medicine, you are Wardock. You are Wardock. That means you don't have to be in combat because you serve in this great military medicine, regardless of what branch of service, you're Wardock. And you need to be recognized. And whether you deployed or you stayed in the hospital, someone had to stay in the rear. Somebody had to take care of the patients at home. So we all are integral parts and interconnected in military medicine. And that's why Wardock is so important that it get the word out about, hey, you have some tremendous people doing great things. And we just like to recognize just saying, hey, you're not alone. We recognize what you do and leaving something behind so others can follow. Being that leader saying, hey, this is my experience. If I got through it, you can get through it too. It gives people confidence. It gives people assurance that, hey, I can do it too. Now think about the many people that listen to what regardless of what stage of life they're in or what branch of service or what job they have. You say I'm a war doc, that's encouraging to me. That means, hey, I have a purpose. I am somebody. I mean, you're something about when you serve our great nation, the cloth of the freedom, you are. But not just any, you're a war doc. That means you take care of people's lives. You save people's lives. You're involved in it, and not only you, but your family as well. So it's a collaboration. All of us are war docs. And wouldn't you like to be a war doc too? So I really can I understand fully why you're so good in your job in recruitment. But what I'd like to hear is you can go back in time and now you're talking to 17-year-old Tyrone Willis. He's getting ready to graduate from high school, doesn't know what he's going to want to do with his life, but he's interested in military medicine. What's the elevator speech today to that 17-year-old that's asking for guidance from you? How do you like serving? How much do you love your country? You love the freedoms that we have that the people provide for you each and every day that you're free to say what you want to wear what you want to go where you want to go. However, freedom is a cost. Are you willing to be that person to help provide the freedoms of the very nation? To me, we all should be encouraged of that. Let me tell you this. What are you doing after school? What are you doing in college? Think about this. Think about some countries that they don't have an option. They all have to serve. And you think their nation better than ours? There is no better country than ours. Why wouldn't you want to serve? And then on top of that, the experience that you have, being a veteran put, put you in places that you never thought about and take you out of places that you wish you were never gone. But it would put you in places that inspire you, encourage you, and make you more than what you ever could be. Why wouldn't you want to serve? What would you like to do in life? Have you ever thought about serving more than just your friends? What about serving a country, serving a nation? What better honor is this than to take care of one of your fellow brothers or sisters? What more honor is that? There's no great honor. And then all of that, 
you're taking care of them, you're helping instill them for future generations, their kids and their kids' kids. Just think about the impact that you have. In order to be impactful, you have to have contact. So think about this, contacting others, being involved with others, being the most influential person you probably ever know. Impactful life, or you just want an ordinary life. There's a difference between ordinary and extraordinary. It's the little extra that you put into it. So let's talk about that impact. 100 years from now, when the history books are written, what would you want them to say about the legacy of Command Master Chief Willis? What I want them to say about me or remember me on is that I care, have a love for people. If it's never about who they were, what they were, meaning humanity, have a fellow love for all mankind. People say, you know, people don't care about how you know, but rather how much you care. And that's what I want. One thing I just wanted to leave with anyone else who knew me is saying, you know something, Willis really cared. That was one of his traits that I admire about him. He cared about all, everyone. He did not discriminate. He just had a love for humanity. And that's all. Not that I was command master chief. I was just Willis. You know, that's all. We've been speaking with retired Navy Command Master Chief Tyrone Willis on Wardock's podcast. Thanks again for sharing your experiences and insights with us. And thank you for your service to this nation. Thank you all for having me and thank you for your all service. Thank you for listening to Wardocs. We sure hope you enjoyed it. Wardocs is a nonprofit organization supported by donations from listeners like you. Please follow and subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcasts and rate and review this episode, and share the show with your contacts on social media. Find out more information about our show, our guests, and how to become a member of Team Wardocs on wardocspodcast.com. Thank you for your support. If you like war stories and medical drama, Wardocs has you covered. Spread the word.